I'd like to ask you this morning, if you would, uh, to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, and I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles this morning. Often I have the text on the screen. That is not the case today. Uh, as always, there is a Version Bible app event for this, so you can follow along that way. But uh, Matthew 16 is where we're going to start. And then we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4 later. We won't actually be in either of these for about 10 minutes or so because we're going to lay some groundwork before we actually look at the biblical text. There's an old uh, stand-up comic routine about a couple guys arguing over who had it the worst growing up. I can remember seeing this when I was a kid and it just, it hit me. Um, the beauty of it hit me, I guess. It was in black and white. There's two guys and the first guy, he begins something like, uh, you know, when we were so poor, we had to sleep five in the same bed. And the other guy looked and said, you had a bed? <laughs> when we were, when I was young, we were so poor, we had to curl up on the blanket in the corner of the bedroom. And the other guy come back and said, you had a blanket? <laughs> and then, you know, it went from a blanket to a newspaper to the whole thing. And finally, you know, neither of them have shoes. They're walking to school uphill in the snow, uphill both directions, uh, that kind of thing. I love that because uh, I think the reason I loved it is because I had people in my life who loved to complain. Uh, they loved to just talk to you about how bad they were suffering, how bad it was in their lives. And I can remember my dad would, would have this expression. He would say, man, when they talk, I don't know if they're bragging or if they're complaining, but uh, it's coming out uh, the same way either way. Suffering. Um, complaining. <laughs> Over the past 12 months, you and I have had uh, a lot of things that have given us pause and maybe even given us reason to complain. Before you think how bad you have it, think how bad my wife has it. She's been trapped in the same house with your pastor for 12 months now or so, right? And uh, <laughs> we were talking uh, earlier this week. I had a LSC C meeting. It was all day long and then a half day of coaching. And come Wednesday, I said to her, you know, I, just, I happen to think we get along really well here. We've been trapped in the same house together. Neither of us have any wounds or life-threatening injuries, and we're both still alive. That, that's really a testament to our marriage. And she looked at me, and she just smiled, and she said, it was really good that you had those two meetings those past two days, Steve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but we all do have reason to complain, maybe. We all have suffered. I mean, whether you yourself have been sick or someone you know has been sick or whether someone, you lost someone to COVID or some other incident or whether you've lost income or just you can't see the same people you used to see. You can't make the visits you like to visit or you're stuck at home and don't have anyone visiting you. Almost all of us have suffered. And, and in a sense, <laughs> that great philosopher, C-3PO, seems to have nailed it long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away when he said, we seem to be made to suffer. It's our lot in life. Do you agree with him? I don't. I don't think that we are made to suffer, but I do want to say to you, in this world, we will have tribulation. I do want to say to you, suggest to you even, that suffering is a keystone in Christian faith. And you can see that in a couple of different ways. I want to talk about that in two ways. First, I want to say to you, suffering is just plain part of the Christian experience. I use this phrase several times when talking about keystones. It's part and parcel of the Christian experience. It's central in the person of Christ and his passion, which means his suffering. And it's also very near center in, 
in our lives. And you can argue against that. In fact, you'll find televangelists, people on television who say, no, don't you believe that you should suffer? All Christians should be victorious and never have suffering or sickness or pain or financial. And and the word for that is baloney. That's just not accurate. I mean, we can spend 30, maybe 60 minutes, but I bet we can do it in 30 minutes just going through the book of Acts, 30 seconds, just going through the book of Acts and seeing how much suffering there was in the early church. The book of Acts begins with Jesus having risen from the dead, ascending to the Father, and now you have the church from here on for the rest of the book of Acts. And you only get a couple chapters until you see two of the leaders, Peter and John. You're going to jail. You're being arrested, Peter and John. And immediately thereafter, you see the entire church being persecuted. The apostles are imprisoned and and given a good beating and then released. And a couple chapters later, one of the Christians... (laughs) Not one of the 12, just one of the Christians, a guy named Stephen. is telling people about Jesus. And they take him outside of the city and they put him, they put stones to him until he is dead. They stone him to death. Then persecution of the believers becomes so great that they had to leave that city. I'm not talking about the leaders, the pastors, Peter, James, John. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the man in the pew. He had to leave. She had to leave. They had to take their family and get out of Dodge. Get out of town. James, the brother of John, is put to death by the sword. And Peter is imprisoned. And Paul and Barnabas are chased from city in Antioch. And Paul himself is stoned outside of the city and and left for dead. That's it. Not breathing? No, no, Paul's leave. His friends go back and they find him, find his body, and, and he's still alive. He was left for dead. And that's only the first half of the book. I mean, there's 28 chapters there. That only takes us up through chapter 14. You can see that suffering is part of the Christian faith. There's no way around it. But practically speaking, I want to say to you that my response to suffering is where the keystone really lies. I mean, anyone can suffer. Everyone does. It is never a question of, If you will suffer, it is a question of how you will suffer. I'll say that again. Everyone suffers. Not everyone suffers well. In fact, sometimes I suffer very poorly. (laughs) Other times, people suffer heroically. Now, we have examples of that in our church family. We have people right here at Kermansville Alliance who have suffered greatly and have suffered well. And every time I relate their stories, words fail me. I don't say it as well as I wish that I could. When I say they suffered well, I'm not saying they don't struggle. You understand that? I mean, they struggle, honestly. Real God, real life, real people. They wept. They cried out to God, probably in anger. They didn't pretend to be something they were not. But they did not give up. And they did not walk away from their faith. They grieved. They lamented. They ached. They moaned. They mourned. And they moved forward, trusting their God. We all know people who have suffered well. And sadly, we know of instances where people did not suffer well. We know of people who've kind of faked their way through it, like, yeah, I'm not bothered by that. And then later, everything came crashing down. And we know of people who 
who said, I am so angry about this suffering. How could God do this? And they've walked out and they've walked away from God. I know people like that. You probably know people like that. And in a sense, our response to pain, how we suffer is indeed a keystone of our Christian faith. I mean, think about why it's important that we suffer well. First of all, it's inevitable. I said earlier, it's not a question of if you suffer, it's a question of how you suffer. So don't invest your heart's energy in trying to avoid suffering, not telling you to look for it, but rather invest your heart's energy into suffering well and how you respond to suffering. Because you see, suffering can actually create in you what otherwise could never be created. And you can see that in nature. You know what a controlled burn is that foresters do, right? I did a little bit of reading about that recently, and and I used to think the controlled burn was just to make like a firewall, you know? So if we have a fire over in that county, and we burn a lot here between these two counties, then if that fire gets out of control, it won't reach the second one. There's no fuel left. We've already expended it. That is one reason they do a controlled burn. But there are other more ancient reasons than that. First, the controlled burn will take care of invading insects and reduce their population, insects that are damaging to the vegetation. Second, a fire actually returns nutrients to the soil that it would take years to otherwise get back into the soil. The fire accelerates that so that the forest can thrive after that fire. Third, a controlled burn, it destroys invasive species of plants that might come in and take over so that the existing forest would be lost. But fourth, and this is what is fascinating to me, do you know that there is a species of pine, pine tree, a species of pine that actually will not release its seed unless there is a fire. Wow, how crazy is that, right? You you see that what we're saying is the fire can create something in that forest that otherwise would never be created. And suffering can create something in us that otherwise could never be created. In Charles Dickens' book, Great Expectations, and I don't know if you read classic books or not. I didn't in high school. They gave us these books, I didn't read them. So I've gone back and read them, and it's so hard for me to say about my high school teachers. I've got a couple of teachers who watch here. They're probably tuned in. They were right. Those teachers were right. Those are great books. Charles Dickens was an amazing author. He wrote a book called Great Expectations, and in that book, he has one of the people saying this, this suffering has been stronger than all other teaching. I have been bent and broken, but I hope into better shape. Fits very well with what James says in chapter 1, verse 12, when he says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive a crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love them, love him. Crown of life. I wonder if that's more than simply a heavenly, heavenly head ornament. <laughs> I wonder if part of the crown of life includes a richer understanding of life and a richer understanding of God. Suffering creates what otherwise would not be created. It's a keystone of Christian faith. And third, suffering speaks loudly about your faith and about your Lord. 
One author says, there is nothing about suffering that is intrinsically glorifying to God. I think that's true. However, how we respond to suffering can glorify God or not. And again, we have people right here at Kerwinsville Alliance who, whose response to suffering stands simply as a heroic example to the rest of us. They have suffered well with many different things. For example, some have suffered with infidelity on the part of their spouse. Others have suffered with financial brokenness. Others have suffered with children who, although they went to church through their formative years, when they became adults, they seemed to have walked away from Jesus. Others have suffered with mental illness, either their own or a family member or a good friend. Others have struggled with the intensive, destructive power of addiction, either in their own life or in their own family. So others have suffered with the loss of family members, even the loss of children. And their testimonies of God's faithfulness are more powerful than if you took every sermon that I have ever preached and put them all together. Did you hear that? Think about that for a minute. You just heard a preacher who believes with all his heart in the power of preaching say to you, that your response to suffering can be more powerful than all his sermons put together. I believe it with all my heart. I believe it with all my heart. No wonder suffering is a keystone to Christian faith. When you suffer well, authentically, honestly, and faithfully, trusting God, you glorify him. Now, I want you to look, I told you earlier, to turn to Matthew chapter 16, we're going to read uh, three verses there, and then we're going to go to 1 Peter 4. I hope you'll follow along. These, there is the Bible app event, and these are not on the screen for you. Um, we're going to look at some of Peter's imperatives on suffering. An imperative is a kind of thing, you need to do this, that kind of thing. And Peter has several of them just in these open verses, opening verses of 1 Peter 4. But first, we're going to be in Matthew. Because what I want to give you is a, 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 a reminder that Peter's perspective on suffering changed dramatically somewhere in his life. Because before Jesus went to the cross, Jesus is talking about it to the disciples. And in Matthew 16, right here in verse 21, you see that it said, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, note, Note Peter's response to that. Verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. You see what's going on in Peter's head. In Peter's mind, suffering is anything but a keystone to Christian faith. Jesus knew better, though. Verse 23. Jesus turned to Peter and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter had a very flawed view of suffering early on. But if you turn to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, turn there in your Bibles now, you're going to see a change in perspective. Because in the NIV, for example, in, in the whole book of 1 Peter, there are less than 100 sentences And yet, the word suffer appears in one form or another 21 times. 
Do the math. That means once every five sentences, Peter is talking about suffering because Peter sees suffering as a keystone of Christian faith. In 1 Peter 4, he gives some imperatives of suffering well. And the first one he talks about is arming yourself with Jesus' perspective. I want to say this to you. A mindset, a perspective, is a tool. It is even a weapon. It is a shield. It is a suit of armor. Look at what he says in verse 1. 1 Peter 4.1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now, as Peter says those words, with the same attitude, he's talking about Christ's outlook. In fact, in the English Standard Version, it says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So he's saying, think like Jesus. Have his perspective as your own. Okay, well, what is Jesus' perspective on suffering? How does he view suffering? Well, you might go to a passage like Mark chapter 10, verse 45, and read where Jesus, speaking about himself, says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see Jesus' perspective? Do you see his attitude, his outlook? As a servant, he willingly embraced suffering because he felt that it was necessary. That doesn't mean it was pleasant. I mean, Jesus wept on multiple occasions. He wept when he was at the graveside of Lazarus, entering into the grief of those around him. That's not a fun thing to do. He wept when he saw the people in Jerusalem. He said, you guys are like sheep without a shepherd. You're so confused about the kingdom and about how to get to heaven. It broke his heart and he wept. I'm sure he wept in the garden. He sweat drops of blood. And what about that kiss of betrayal? Judas, did he betray me with a kiss? It wasn't pleasant. But Jesus endured it willingly. And that is the kind of attitude that Peter is advocating. Because when you have that attitude, you reveal your disconnect from sin. Listen to the last part of verse 1 again. He says, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Okay, let me just be real clear about that, what he's not saying there. Peter doesn't mean if you suffer enough, then you won't sin anymore. That's not his point. Perhaps that's what the ascetics believed. You know, those guys who were always hurting themselves, beating themselves, torturing themselves, damaging themselves in the hopes that somehow or other that would either eradicate or it would at least suppress the sinful nature. It didn't. And that's not what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about how when you're committed to Christ and you have his viewpoint on suffering, then you don't really have the same attraction to the earthly things that you once had. And then he happens to mention, by the way, that's going to cause you a little more suffering. Look at it in verse 2. He says, as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human, evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. That's what you did in the past, Peter is saying. But believers live differently when they come to Jesus. And the non-believers see this, and Peter says they don't like it. Look at the very next verse, verse four. 
He says they're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. They're suffering again. That keystone in the kingdom. And it's real. When you turn your back on the things that others may indulge, you will suffer. Maybe ridicule and being made fun of. Maybe loss of friendship. Maybe aloneness. Maybe being uninvited. But if your viewpoint is Jesus' viewpoint, if you have his perspective, that's okay with you. Because you know suffering is worth it, and you know that suffering is a keystone in Christian faith. Peter says, arm yourself with Jesus' perspective. And he says, turn your gaze toward eternity. Turn your eye toward eternity. It's in verse 7. He says in verse 7, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. I once had a commentary, and I've talked about this before, that spoke to the issue of why biblical authors always say the end is near. There it is. Peter says it right there. The end of all things is near. Why did they say that? And that commentator is asking that good question. How can these authors say that the end of time is near when we're 2,000 years out and still waiting? And then that commentary author gave a really bad answer to his really good question. He said they were wrong. He said those who wrote the Bible were wrong. And that commentary, I walked it down to the end of the hall, out the door, and into the dumpster. <laughs> because you've got to have a lot, a lot of uh, something to say that the Bible's wrong or the guys who read it are wrong. Many answer that question quite simply. Simply by noting that the last days began at the ascension of Christ. When he ascended on high, the last days were ushered in. We have been living in the last days for a couple thousand years. That's what's going on there. And in light of this, Peter says, I want you to be alert. I want you to pay attention. I want you to see what's happening around you. And I want you to be prepared Now, let me tell you, let me just say this. Being prepared doesn't mean stockpiling weapons or food. Being prepared doesn't mean building a bomb shelter so you can hide out when the end comes. Being prepared isn't about preserving your own life. Christian faith is never about preserving your own hide. Never. Being prepared is being like Jesus. Carrying an awareness that heaven and hell are just around the corner. Just around the corner. Serving so that people can choose Jesus wisely. Whether serving in church or serving in the workplace or serving in your family. But using your life to serve others so that they can make wise choices about Jesus. It's telling people, being alert is telling people what Jesus has done for you so that they will know the reason for the hope you have within you. Being prepared is giving pause to how you are investing your time, your money, your resources, even your very life. Being prepared is discipling people, talking about Jesus with them, helping them understand him and his word, and growing that way. It is living with an eye focused toward the future, a gaze focused toward eternity, so that here you live sincere, constant, prayerfully, with an awareness that heaven and hell are just around the corner. It's kind of a way we suffer for the kingdom. It is a keystone of Christian faith. Okay, Peter's imperatives. Arm yourself with Jesus' perspective. Turn your gaze toward eternity. And third, love. 
love each other. That's, that's what he says in verse 8. That love is a way that we walk through a world of suffering. Verse 8 says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. I just want you to notice something. When Peter is talking about how to manage suffering, and he's written an entire book on suffering where once every five, five sentences, he mentions the word suffering, he uses these two words, above all, about love. And you can see the importance of love in suffering. And you can see that without love, you're probably not going to manage suffering well. Probably not. (laughs) When I think of that phrase, love covers over a multitude of sins, I figure he's saying, so you're probably going to have to forgive people that have sinned. And the way you do that is to love them. Let me do that thing that I do every now and again. Let me change gears and switch from preaching to meddling. Okay? (laughs) I'm going to get to meddling in you. What I'm going to do, I'm going to ask you to put your toes right here, and I'm just going to come up and I'm going to step on them one at a time. Okay? Here it is. Do you find it easy to build a wall between those who have political perspectives that not only you don't share, but you don't understand? I don't think I can love that person. I don't think I can be around that person. If that is the case, then maybe this applies to you. Love is what will cover over that multitude of sins. Let me go to your next toe. (laughs) Are there people that you have written off because they have opinions with which you disagree? That you become so angry that you've thought this thought, if not said it out loud, he is dead to me. I've done that. I've felt that. Maybe this is for us. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Have you broken fellowship with anyone because of fill in the blank? Maybe this is for you. Love covers over a multitude of sins. And by the way, in all of these things, whether it's politics or opinions or whatever you filled in the blank with, there might be someone on the other side that's saying, but he's wrong. I don't know if I can love him. You don't know that you're right. You don't know that you're right. And that's why Peter says, above all, love one another deeply because love lets you forget about those differences. It covers over a multitude of sins. And you can suffer well when you choose to love. But if you do not choose to love, then sometimes it feels like your suffering will be in vain. Maybe all bets are off on that. Love. Forgive one another. And Peter says, serve one another as well. Verse 9, he says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And i got to know, sometimes don't you just wonder, wonder what's going on in Peter's personal background here. Why does he say, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling? I want you to know that in Peter's day, you couldn't go and stay at the Motel 6. You couldn't go to Super 8. That when you traveled, as Peter did, you would have someone who would open their house to you and offer hospitality to you. I got to wonder if one night Peter was staying at somebody's house and he heard them grumbling about, I can't believe Peter's here again. Do you see how messy he eats? You know, he talks with his mouth full all the time. I don't know. Is that going on? Or was it his own family? Did he happen to notice that his mom was always grumbling when there were people who showed up? I don't know. But what Peter is saying here is you need to love one another and serve one another open-handedly and open-heartedly. In verse 10, he says, each of you should use whatever gift you receive to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. 
If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should serve with the strength that God provides. You know, the scripture tells us that each believer has been given at least one spiritual gift, a gift from God that enables you to serve in the kingdom. Everybody has at least one of those. Sometimes people say, I don't think I have a gift. What it is, maybe they don't like their gift. (laughs) But you will love your gift if you will surrender to God. And he gives you that gift. Uh, It might be prophecy. That is what I feel like I do on Sunday mornings. Prophecy isn't like, you're going to meet a tall, dark, handsome sweater. Yeah, stranger. (laughs) Tall, dark, handsome stranger. Yeah, that's not prophecy. You know, you got to wonder, those ones, I don't know, they're not around anymore. You used to be able to call in, I don't know, Miss Cleo or something like that, right? She'd give you your lottery numbers. I'm gonna tell you, if I knew your lottery numbers, I'd play them. I wouldn't give them to you, and then I wouldn't have to do this stupid television show, right? So prophecy is not foretelling the future. It can include that, but prophecy is that it's basic element, hearing a message from God and giving it to God's people. That's it. And so as I speak to you, I feel like that's what I'm doing. There's other gifts as well. There's a gift of evangelism where you're the kind of person who can just sit down and talk to someone about Jesus and they're like, I want that. There's a gift of teaching where you can, you can explain truths from the Bible and people are like, man, that never made sense before, but I get that. That's so helpful to me. There's, there's a gift of serving. There's a gift of helps. Man, I'm gonna embarrass him. Brian Warren, he just has a gift of helps. I love it. Walked in this morning and, and his daughter kind of slipped on the ice out here. I said, hey, Brian. He said, I'm getting it. <laughs> you know, it was almost like that. And he took care of making sure that there was salt out there so no one else slipped, you know? And then he's running around, he's taking down all the emergency lighting because when the worship team was practicing, I was trying to do a disco thing here in the sanctuary with the emergency lights. I was. It distracted him a little bit. But um, I noticed some of them were out. He pulled all the batteries out of it. I said, do you need me to order those batteries? He said, I'll take care of it, Pastor Steve. You know what that is? That's the gift of helps. I don't have that. I'm the kind of guy when I walk into the kitchen, you say, get out of here. You know, you don't know what to do. Get out of here. I don't have that gift. The gift of shepherding, of being able to come close to someone and help them along. The gift of showing mercy, of being compassionate towards someone when they need compassion in their life. If you're a Christ follower, you have a gift like that. And if you want to follow Peter's imperatives on suffering, then you'll love others deeply and you'll use that gift. That's such a healthy response to suffering to use the gift that God has given you. Because all in all, what you're doing there is you're living and loving so that God is glorified. And that is how to suffer heroically. Look to glorify God. We love because it's the right thing to do in times of celebration and in times of suffering. And when we love, the last part of verse 11 materializes. So in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Did you hear that amen from the back? Good girl. Good girl. It was a girl, right? Good boy. Good boy. I knew it was a boy. Hey, you know what? (laughs) There's a part of suffering I haven't even addressed yet. And it's the redemptive aspect of suffering. It might be the most important part. There are times when God actually takes our suffering and redeems it. Here's what I mean by that. He brings something from our suffering, which to us feels like a very ugly thing that has invaded our life. He brings something from it that is a very, very beautiful thing. I want to tell you a story of that. Some of you may know the story. It's a story of redemptive suffering. In the late 1800s, a young Chicago lawyer experienced a great loss. 
He had a four-year-old son who was killed or who died. That's a big loss to any young family. But on top of that, very shortly thereafter, (laughs) fire came to his city. The great Chicago fire. Mrs. O'Leary's cow knocked that lantern over and the city went down. And he was a lawyer who had invested heavily in real estate in buildings and those buildings were turned to ash. And he was ruined financially, forced to start again. So he started again. Kind of got back on his feet. Two years later, he's planning to go to England with his family because he's going to help out this evangelist called Dwight L. Moody to do an evangelistic campaign in in England. But he had to take care of some zoning issues relating to his business. So he said to his wife, you take the four girls and you go, I'll catch up with you after I take care of this. While crossing the Atlantic Ocean, that ship collided with another ship and sunk rapidly into the sea. And all four of his daughters drowned to death. His wife, Anna, survived. And Anna sent what is now a famous telegram, two words, saved alone. Shortly afterwards, he traveled to meet his grieving wife. And he was inspired to write some words as his ship passed near the area where his daughters had been lost to the sea. Here's what he wrote. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Now, many of you know that song. Some of you knew the story ahead of time. Many of you could sing every verse of that song. You know all the words to that song. And you're like, yeah, I know that song. And some of you, probably a more significant number than I might guess, have found not just great comfort in that song, but great hope in that song. That song has touched more lives than anything Horatio Spafford could ever have done, could ever have hoped to do. And you can kind of look at God and you can kind of say that saying, I see what you did there. I see what you did there, God. You took the unbearable suffering of Horatio and Anna Spafford and you gave it value. You redeemed it. That's what God does. (laughs) He takes this keystone of Christian faith, suffering, and he uses it in ways that we could not imagine. That is not to say, and only someone who was completely callous 
would go to Horatio and Anna and say, well, you see, the death of your children was worth it. What a beautiful poem came out of that. We would never say that kind of sentence. But what we can say is this. Your suffering is never meaningless. That your suffering is not beyond redemption. That there is a God who can take something terrible and find something beautiful in it and create something beautiful from it. I want to pray that this viewpoint, that these imperatives that Peter gives us would belong to us not just in head knowledge, but deep within our hearts. So that as we encounter suffering with the one who walks through the valley of the shadow of death with us, we would fear no evil, but rather we would have a confidence in his presence, his power, his purpose. So if you're comfortable doing so, would you please stand? And we will pray to that end. Doug, I would like to ask you to, never mind, it came back. That camera disappeared, but it came back. I was going to ask you to see if it needed attention. Thank you. Let's pray to that end, shall we? Father in heaven, sometimes preaching on suffering is... uh, it's hard to do because it's not like any of us have our act together on this. And I never do it with kind of a cavalier attitude, like here's how to handle suffering. Suffering is very difficult in our lives. It is something we would never wish for. And we look forward to a day where there is no more suffering, to a time when you will wipe every tear from our eyes and pain will be no more. The clouds be rolled back and the Lord will descend. It will be well with our soul. Between now and then, may the mind of Christ dwell in us. His perspective, his outlook, may it shape our responses to the things that come into our life. May we be men and women who choose to trust you. May we be people who choose to love one another. May we be people who honestly grapple with the pain of suffering and come to the end of it clinging to you. May you be glorified and may others' hearts be turned toward yours. This is a prayer of our heart. We pray it with a sense of confidence because of Christ Jesus in his name. Amen.